Father God, uh, we pray uh, as we have uh, offered uh, our worship and sacrifices to you and pledged ourselves for ministry, Lord, that, that we now receive from you uh, this morning that you would uh, invest in us your presence, your confidence, your affection, empowerment to be healed and to heal. We pray, Lord, we'd all be changed a little bit and that you would get us further down uh, the road in our Blue Water journey, wherever that takes us this week. In Jesus' name, everybody says, amen. Uh, have you heard that there's an all-church retreat coming up? I just, I just, I just kind of want to underscore that. Uh, we have uh, had currently, at, well, at the end of the week, like about half of the people that we expect to come signed up which means that about 50% of you haven't signed up. Um, so uh, you got like 72 hours. Uh, and you don't want to miss it. Um, I really think the Lord will be speaking to us corporately. And I think the Lord will be speaking to a lot of individuals. We have a couple of very prophetic friends flying in from the mainland to minister to us, but I also think that just in seeking the voice and presence of the Lord, we're going to see extraordinary things this year. Um, Pop quiz, let's start. Roll your shoulders, clap your hands, tug on your ears. Here you go. Uh, Are you willing to trust God no matter what? It's a yes or no question. Are you willing to trust God no matter what? I will let you think about it for eight seconds. Are you willing to trust God no matter what? Oh, some of you just answer so confidently right off the bat. I like that. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, no matter what. All right, so, so second, second question for the sake of reflection. When don't you trust God? Because if we're going to be honest, there, there, there may be some, some moments in your life where you have not trusted God, where you've done something Oh, let's call it disobedient. Uh, So when did that happen? When do you not trust God? You're willing to trust God no matter what, but when haven't you? Uh, When don't you trust God? Maybe there's something that you struggle to trust God with uh, consistently. I'll give you eight seconds to think about that. Sometimes it's, oh, I don't know. Sometimes it's finances. Sometimes it's relationships. Sometimes it's, it's things we do for comfort. Whatever. That's just warm up. I think trusting God is the point of life, by which I mean, uh, I think that the the challenge of this life on earth is to grow to trust God. Uh, The primary way we learn to trust God is by ministering. Uh, with God by ministering the kingdom in the world, but there's all sorts of uh, ways to do it. I think what we want to do is we don't want to, you know, we don't want to be successful in life uh, in any way, especially except that we want to be successful in trusting God. I think in the end of days, uh, just to put it simplistically, we don't get trusted on our, we don't get judged on our sin. We get judged on our trust, right? It's not, it's not how perfect we are. It's whether or not uh, we trusted God uh, with everything. That's what the Bible uh, teaches. Uh, I have dedicated my life uh, to trust God. I think it's a big deal in my life. 
Frankly, sometimes I don't do it very well. I will pause here and let you gasp. Um, you know, because I'm not as perfect as you all think I am. Uh, and I know myself well enough to be able to tell you why I don't trust God as well as I want to. I'm over 50 now. I've learned one or two things about God. I've learned one or two things about myself. This is what I've learned about myself and why I don't trust God as well as I want to. First of all, it's not to do with any sort of intellectual doubt or anything like that. You know, I'm I consider myself a fairly strong-minded person. I have made up my mind about God. I do not have intellectual arguments that prevent a barrier between me me and God. In fact, I think it's very rare that humans have any intellectual problems with the existence or nature of God. Most of what we think are intellectual problems are really just emotional problems in disguise. Speaking of which, I don't fail to trust God perfectly due to any emotional fear or something like that. I'm actually a very risk-acceptant person. I have no problem with risk. Um, uh, those of you who know me probably would agree. And, you know, right? I'm, I'm willing to try just about anything in life if I think that the Lord is leading there. And I've got lots of stories to back me up on that. In fact, you know, let me be a little boastful here. I almost always do the right thing in life in the end, which is to say I I virtually always do what I feel God has led me to try. Virtually. (laughs) Not not perfectly, but, you know, as humans go, I'm not bad at that. Uh, I, I usually grind it out. If I feel led by God to try something, there is an extremely good chance that I'm going to try it. And I don't fail to trust God perfectly because I've gotten myself mixed up in some pattern of sin that has eroded my mind or eroded my spirit because sin has that effect on people. And while, you know, I I sin fairly regularly in different ways, I'm not locked into some pattern of doing it that I think has eroded my trust, uh, my ability to trust. So, So that's the good news. Here's Here's why I sometimes, you know, fail to trust God as as well as I want to. I struggle to trust God because of my experience with God. Let me explain what I mean by that. It's because I have so often been disappointed by my experience of obeying God. I obey God. I do what I think he tells me to do. And then it just doesn't work out. And that has become the main struggle of my faith life. What do I do with setbacks? What do I do with disappointments? What do I do when I, when I actually follow through on the commands, the leadings of the Lord, and things just kind of fall apart? No fruitfulness comes from it. Nothing that I can observe anyway. And I end up taking one on the chin. So what happens to me now, uh, on bad days, I have good days and bad days, right? Uh, On my bad days is that, you know, I'll go to prayer to the Lord every day. I've got lots of stuff that I'm asking God to help me with. And I'll go to prayer. I'll say, Lord, I really need your help with. 
and then this thing comes up in me. It is not an attack from the enemy. It is not some mind game that I'm playing. It just kind of, it just kind of wells up from my core, from this, well, this, this injured place, from, from this place of experience. And it says to me, you can't ask God for that. He's not, he's not reliable. That's, that's what trips me up. That's what prevents things, uh, the trust from flowing uh, as well as it might. It comes from me. I can't blame it on the devil. It comes out of my experience. Um, now, don't, don't misunderstand me, uh, because I have experienced more than my fair share of God coming through in my life. You know, a lot of you know some of my big disappointment stories, but a lot of you know my big miracle stories as well. I think this sounds a little bit boastful as well, but I think I've experienced more than my fair share of outright miracles in this life. It's, you know, it's arguable, I don't know, but there's a good chance that I've experienced more miracles than anyone sitting here. Um, And part of that is because I've been pursuing them for longer uh, than a a lot of you have have been uh, around. I've experienced more than my fair share of miracles, and I could not possibly deny the presence of God in my life. I could not possibly deny God's interest in me. I, just, I have too many experiences in that direction to, to ever reasonably deny uh, that. Yet, I have also experienced more than my fair share of disappointments as well. I've miraculously healed people in Jesus' name and, and literally seen lives saved and sometimes souls saved as well. On the other hand, I've tried and failed to save people whom I love very much and experienced that sort of disappointment and failure. Uh, I've seen God provide for me, my family, and my kingdom enterprises. I've, I've seen him provide out of thin air. I've got more miraculous provision stories than you can shake a stick at. And um, I've also had to give up on very important things because God has not provided in the critical instance. And I've had to let them go and move on to the next thing. Uh, God has been undeniably active and miraculous in my life. And God has occasionally been inexplicably inactive at critical moments of my life. Do I hear an amen from anyone else? I do not struggle with God's existence. I don't struggle with his presence. I don't, I don't struggle with his love for me. I have felt it. I have felt it in an immediate, powerful, physical way. I do not struggle with, uh, with knowing his, his power. How could I? How could I? I've experienced far too much of it. But there is something in me that wonders about his reliability nonetheless. And that comes from my experiences with God, frankly. Ironically, I think it's the ones who take risks for God most that are most likely to have disappointing experiences with God, right? Because when you take risks for God, you make yourself vulnerable to disappointment 
with God. So it's, it's the risk takers. It's the people with the most trust that end up having the most disappointments. And yeah, I think that's probably a fair way to characterize my life as well. When I obey God, um, you know, I, I make myself vulnerable to people and circumstances, to, to, to betrayal and abandonment and, I don't know, things just falling apart. Uh, I, I get abandoned or betrayed, and when outcomes just don't justify the amount of effort that I put into something, that affects me. You know, I'm human. It really affects me. You know, I have times, I've had times when I've, when I've felt <laughs> that I've absolutely needed God to come through in some certain way, and He didn't. He didn't come through in that way. And that has affected me deeply. It's affected me deeply. I, I carry that with me every single day of my life. And that's because I've pursued the life so much, you know. And I know that some of you can relate. Even if you're new to the journey of faith, you know, that, that struggle, I think, is it's fairly universal to all of us. Who, who live the life. I mean, you can have incredible faith breakthroughs. You can see miracles one day and the next day be like, man, where is God? And, and as a practical matter, not a theological matter, but as a practical matter, I mean, that, that's, we need an answer for that. Like we need some, some, some technique, some, some wisdom, some way of walking that gets us through that experience. You could, you could wave away disappointment with God with the sort of vague grand theology. Well, you know, his ways are higher than our ways, which is totally true, right? I mean, God's moving pieces on the chessboard in a way that we do not understand. So if one of our pawns gets sacrificed and we're like, oh, loss, disappointment, failure, you know, God's still like, hey, I got the game. Don't worry about it. You know, I understand more than you do. And that's, that's totally true, but, but it's in a way, it's also entirely impractical because you still have to get up the next morning and play the game, right? Um, as, as I say, you have to live, you have to do things as if God will come through in a given situation, knowing that he might not. And in the gaps and in the tensions of that, you know, there, there is faith. And, and how, do you, how do you pull that off? I just think that's a super practical question. There are very few questions more practical than that one. One of the reasons I love the life story of Paul that we get in Scripture, because we, we get to see him deal not with the grand theological questions, although we've discussed some of those in our sermon series on the life of Paul. We get to see the way that he steps through the life questions, you know, like those really practical moments of tension and, and gaps and stuff like that. I, I just love the life story of Paul in Scripture uh, because of that. We get these very real, very practical insights if we, if we are willing to see them, if we're willing to bother to see them. So, so I want to I take a look at, uh, at one of those stories today. Uh, we've only got uh, a couple weeks left uh, in the sermon series on, on the life of Paul. Uh, this is, uh, I got so many favorite stories about Paul, but, but this is really one of my favorites. We're going to be reading today from Acts 27 and 28. 
particularly in your program, a passage from Acts chapter 28. Um, and let me set up the story for you. So what's happening here, if you've been following me along, you know this, is Paul, Paul is on uh, the last leg of his last ministry trip, so to speak. He's been out ministering in the field, planting churches in the field. He kind of gets driven out of Ephesus due to a riot, but he leaves behind just this glorious community there. Uh, that would go on ministering for, for generations. And, and he heads back to Jerusalem because he feels led by the Lord to go there. He has this prophecy on his life that he will end up uh, ministering uh, in, in Rome, actually. But he feels like his, his road leads through Jerusalem. When he hits Jerusalem, well, you know, uh, just a circus breaks out around him. Uh, the religious Jews there start accusing him of defaming the temple, and it all gets crazy and, and, and complicated. He gets arrested almost immediately when he gets back to the city, as he prophesied he would. He knows that he's going to be thrown into prison and, and beaten around a bit. Uh, first, he gets uh, arrested by the Jewish authorities. He gets passed eventually to the Roman authorities that are the occupying force, and and he gets passed from one authority to the other. Um, along along the way, while while this nonsense is going on, uh, Paul's uh, he's in prison. He's in prayer one night uh, from, in Acts uh, twenty three verse eleven. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul. I, I could preach a whole sermon just on that phrase. The Lord stood. Near, I would love, I would love for the Lord to stand uh, near me. If you see him up here, give me a shout. Um, the Lord stood near Paul and said, "Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome." I mean, like the Lord. I, I don't know exactly what that is. You know, I'm used to the Lord speaking to me, but the Lord coming and standing next to me, I don't know exactly what manifestation that speaks to, but it must have been awesome. The Lord says to Paul, hey, it's crazy in Jerusalem right now. Everybody's threatening to kill you. Don't worry. Take courage. I'm going to get you to Rome. Straight from the Lord uh, to Paul. So what do you think Paul believes in? Where's, where's he going? Thank you. Let's, let's just try that again. I know it's really humid in here. What, where's Paul going? Does Paul have any reason to doubt that he's going to? Does he? Excellent. I'm a little worried about you. I've got to be honest with you. Uh, so off he goes. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to read, I'm going to read chapter uh, 27. It's this long, crazy story. It's actually the longest story. It's the longest narrative in the entire New Testament. Stretches from, in a way, 22 all the way to the end of the book. I'm just going to read this to you. Try to focus in. Try to listen. I know it's hot. Everybody stretch your ears. Everybody uh, smack the ears of the people next to you. Here we go. Picking up the story in Acts 27. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, this is, this is Luke writing, Paul's biographer. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Rome is in Italy, by the way, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. That is to say, you know, the regiment from Rome. We boarded a ship uh, from Adramitium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. 
one of the ministry partners. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his knees. He gets a little, little prison furlough there. Uh, and, and then he goes back to the ship. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. The storm starts brewing. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off of Canidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmone. We arrived along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. So it's been, a, it's been a rough sea journey up till now. Much time had been lost, it says, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. They're getting into the late season. So Paul warned them. Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. So Paul has a prophecy. He says, look, if we continue this journey as is, we're going to lose our lives. You know, there's a, there's a contingent moment. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm headed to Rome. God has told me I'm going to Rome, but if you persist on traveling this way, we're not going to make it. Which is interesting. You could talk about that theology. Is it going to get to Rome or not? But apparently Paul thinks that if this journey continues, he will die, along with everybody else on board. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along before the wind. Anybody ever been in a small boat in a storm at sea? I have just a terrible place to be. You feel helpless, fearful, 24-7, every moment of every day. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold the hull together. They were just getting battered because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. I won't, a sea anchor is something that slows the ship down and keeps it pointed in a certain direction. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. They can no longer control the ship appropriately. Then when neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. This is Luke writing. We, everybody, all the Christians, all the experienced ministers, gave up all hope. They knew they were going to die, just as Paul said they would. Should have listened. But now, obviously, it's too late pause. It just must have been a poignant moment, right? It's like, wow, after all we've been through, this is where we're going to go down. 
You know, we had an appointment in Rome. We don't get there because of some arrogant ship captain. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have been then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. I love it that Paul, the giant of faith, the great church planner of all time, is still willing to stand up in a storm and say, I told you so. I like Paul. I like him a lot. You, just, you had to get that in, you know? And, uh, and I just think that's cool. And I'm sure he added a few tisk tisks. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost only the ship will be destroyed. If you've been following along, you know that Paul is now contradicting his own prophecy. He's saying, now I know that no one will die. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. What is this about The Lord, an angel standing beside Paul. I don't know. I want his prayer life. But an angel came and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So, updated information. You're going to make it after all. Uh, So Paul goes with that and says, All right. God has given me all your lives. Uh, You should have listened to me before. You're lucky I'm here now. I like that. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me, which is just a a fantastic thing for him to say because God has told him at this point a couple of different things, but he's totally willing to update as the story unfolds. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. <laughs> it's not all good news. The ship must run aground. That's how we're going to be saved. You know, you'll lose the ship. Oh, well. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. There's so much detail in this story. You know, you know, that, you know it's, it's one of those things that, that Luke remembers vividly. It's like, yeah, that was freaking scary. I remember everything that went down. So he remembers the sounding. Uh, Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. This is getting awesome. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. 
had a little communion there. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. And when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Here we go, people, cutting loose the anchors. They left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and they made for the sandy beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. Oh, come on. Seriously? This is how it's going to go down. A sandbar is, uh, you may know the one in Kaneohe Bay, but it's, you know, it's not the beach. It's out to see uh, ships hit the reef or they hit the sandbars. They get pounded to death by the waves. That's, that's how most shipwrecked sailors uh, die. So this is very, very bad news. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. Well, that's nice of them. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship, floating like garbage to the beach. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Snaps. And here we pick up the story uh, as it exists in your your program. But just kind of appreciate what has gone on here. Uh, Paul was told by God that he had to get to Rome, but then he prophetically perceived destruction and the death of everyone, that he would die instead of reaching Rome. Well, that's kind of a setback. You know, but somehow, somehow, he takes that in stride. Within Paul's theology, apparently he had, he had this understanding that even if God tells you to do something, it might not work out. Apparently, Paul believed that. Uh, the experience is super, super exhausting. You know, I've been in smaller storms uh, at sea. Uh, they suck. Um, I just imagine uh, where they were mentally, physically, emotionally. Then Paul gets new information. That's interesting. He gets a prophetic update from an angel. The way it reads, it it looks as if maybe Paul has, has, by praying, changed God's mind somehow. That's kind of how it reads. The angel shows up and says, uh, because of you, you know, all these people are going to live. That's nice, Paul. It says, God has graciously given you the lives of, of everyone on board. I don't know exactly how it worked out, but we get updated information. And then when it looks like the escape is coming true, they hit a sandbar. They hit the reef, and the boat breaks up. But somehow, um, you know, they shake off that setback, <laughs> and they make, it to, they make it to shore. Paul holds faith, and somehow uh, they get through. We pick up the story in Acts chapter 28. It's like, well, finally, that's over. Finally, that's over. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. Anybody been to Malta? Kind of a touristy place these days. A place with a lot of history. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. You bet it was hurricane weather. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood. Paul, exhausted. He's done so much. But what's he doing? He's helping gather wood for the fire. What a guy. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, 
fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. He gets bitten by a poisonous snake while gathering wood for the comforting fire of his shipmates. Oh, come on! Come on! He's been in prison, he's been beaten, he's been passed around. He was in Jerusalem in prison for two years. He finally catches a ship, he thinks he's going to die at sea, goes through all of this drama, these prophetic updates. They run aground on the sandbar, they finally make it to shore miraculously, and then when everybody's safe, he's gathering some wood to help his friends, and he gets bitten by a poisonous viper, and everyone thinks that he's going to die. I'd be grumpy. I'd be a wee bit grumpy uh, at this point. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. That's it. He shook it off. He shook it off. Didn't say he prayed. Didn't say that Luke prayed for him, that any miracle happened. He was just like, oh, deadly poisonous viper. Pass me that log. That's it. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and and said he was a god. Well, that's a turnaround. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went to see him and, after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. (laughs) It was just an amazing day. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. You know, eventually, this is how Paul uh, gets gets to Rome. just, wow, you know. Obviously, what I'm interested here in, in is Paul's shake-off capacity. It's a technical term, shake-off capacity. Right? Do you have shake-off capacity? You know, shake-off capacity is when you're going along and you've taken one hit, two hits, three hits, and then this crazy, unthinkably bad thing happens and you're just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Onward. You know, you can just shake it off. Shake it off. Shake it off. We should have an anthem. Anybody? Everybody's ashamed to admit they listen to Taylor Swift. This obviously is what she was writing about. Uh, so here's my question. We just kind of just kind of cut to the chase. When the super poisonous viper um, bit Paul, after all this crazy stuff had happened, did he think himself invulnerable to the poison? Or did he just not care too much about his vulnerability? Right? Did, did he think himself invulnerable, and that's why he shook it off? Or did he just not care too much about his vulnerability? And so he just couldn't be bothered to notice. 
Do you understand the difference between the two? Right? I mean, did he think like, well, man, God told me this was going to happen, so there's no way I'm going to be harmed. Or was he like, ah, the life is vulnerable. You know, I died to myself a long time ago. Whatever. Uh, I'm going to go serve the people as best I can. Which was it? Which was it for him? And I think how you answer the question has a tremendous amount of practical effect on your life if you're living the life of faith. If you're living a comfortable life where you never take any risks on God and you're not really strong in obedience, then this doesn't apply to you. But if you're really, really, really trying to be obedient, to live the life of faith and to take risks for God and to live the life of ministry and to put yourself out there, then I think this question is hugely important. Do you shake it off because you think you're invulnerable? Or do you shake it off because eh, you just don't care too much about your own vulnerability? You know, what, what, what is it? This, this, this is a... This is a grown-up kind of lesson, I think. I think to be true to the text, you know, the answer has to be, well, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of both. It's kind of both. You, clearly, Paul is willing to risk everything based on what he felt the Lord has told him is going to happen. On the same token, clearly, Paul is, is willing to update his belief about what's going to happen from time to time, you know. God says, you're going to go to Rome. And Paul says, yeah, well, things have gotten fouled up, and actually I'm going to die at sea. Oh, well, actually, I am going to make it to Rome. You know, he's willing to hold the prophecies of the Lord lightly. He's willing to say, well, you know, that was the Lord's plan, but it didn't work out for me. You know, he's, he's willing to not insist on invulnerability. He's willing to not insist on perfection right? And that seems to be a vital ingredient of how the dude gets through his crazy life. To be honest to the text, I think that's, that's what we have to say. You know, he could be like, oh, God is good no matter what. No matter, yeah, sure. But, but I think probably for him it was more gritty than that. I think he was like, well, you know, God said this. I've certainly done my best. If it doesn't work out, I'm going to heaven as he would say in one of his letters famously, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. <laughs> you know, God will come through for me in this life. And if he doesn't, I get a sweet retirement. You know, and he was sort of okay with it. Either, I don't know what you call that exactly. That sort of contentment, humility. But that was, that was key to his life of faith. Um, I, I think practically, trusting God at a high level is a combination of trusting God at a high level plus suspending your distrust of God at a high level. You know, I, I, I could tell you without going into details, uh, if I wanted to, I could make a very good case this morning for why you should distrust God. I can complain like nobody's business. I could 
you know, I could say, look, you know, this is where I was let down. This is where I was let down. This is where I was let down. What, does God want to fool me? He says one thing and then another thing happens and then he updates later, you know. And you can make that case if you set your heart on it. I know this from experience. It was a big part of the depression that I've struggled with in my life. It's possible to make a case against God. I've got, I've got decent evidence for this. Or I can make a case the other way, you know and say, in spite of all the crazy things that happen, you know, when you see the miracle in front of you or where God comes through, it's like, how many miracles do you have to see before trusting that he's a miraculous God? Even if the next situation doesn't work out as well. You can make a case either way. The case I choose to make is where the faith lies. That's what determines whether I'm a man of faith or not. What I do when the drama settles and I take action. You know, we are what we choose in the end. Uh, I have a story about this. I've told it before. Uh, I, was, I was young. I was like, I don't know, 22 years old, and I was living in a, in a very rough, very violent neighborhood at the time, and, and there had been some disappointments in my life, and, and I was ministering as hard as I can, literally risking my life on occasion uh, in, in this ministry. And, and one morning I got up, and I went for a walk along South San Francisco Bay. I lived in a neighborhood that was so dangerous that people wouldn't go out to the bay uh, because uh, that's where people were taken to get executed. Uh, the gangs would kill them there and dump the bodies, which meant that all of this prime real estate along San Francisco Bay was utterly abandoned because nobody, everybody was too scared to go out there. So, of course, that's where I went for my prayer walks because I had total isolation. It was awesome. It was beautiful out there. And I was walking along... Uh, this, this very tip of, of the bay and just me and, and the waterfowl and, uh, and, and I was complaining to God. I was making my case against him. Look, you said you would come through this way and you didn't. And the Lord interrupted me. It was one of those times in life where you just know the Lord was, is, is speaking to you for sure. And the Lord said to me, stop, I want to tell you the story of, of Abraham. And so he began in a way that almost felt like dictation, telling me the story of Abraham and, and Isaac uh, which is a story that I knew very well. Uh, Abraham waits for years and years and years and finally gets this, the son that God promised him. And then the Lord says, oh, now you must sacrifice your son for me. You know this story, right? And so Abraham takes Isaac up to the top of a mountain uh, and, uh, to, to kill him, to kill his promise, to kill the son that God promised him. So that's a contradiction, right? Here's your promised son. Through this son, uh, you are going to become uh, a great people, right? This is the son that will have all of your descendants. Now kill him. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. But of course, Abraham says, yes, sir. Takes Isaac up to the mountaintop. Is just about to, to strike him dead. And, you know, the angel appears and stops him. And Isaac ends up living. But Abraham was willing to embrace that contradiction. And God told me the story. And I, I, remember, I remember the moment. 22 years old. I still remember this like it was yesterday. I, I stop and I'm like, yeah, I know that story. You know, your point. And then the Lord spoke to me and I will never, ever forget this. He said, my promises to you are still my promises. Do you get that? This is kind of a matter of tone and intent. It's like, yes, I promise you thing. But if we're going to pull this off, Jordan, young man, if we're going to pull this off, you can't take me to court based on 
on my promises, my prophecies, and my command. You'll, you'll screw something up. You have to be like Abraham. It's like God's promises to me are still God's territory. <laughs> he gets to do with them what he wants. And if I don't have that vulnerable, humble attitude, and, and somehow I will screw it up. And, you know, I've, I've lived almost, almost 30 years now since that time, and I can tell you that's been maybe the main theme of my life. It's like, yeah, you know, God has promised me great things. I've seen some great things, but I have also been so confused, so disappointed. God says, no, that's how it works, man. That's how it worked for Abraham. That's how it's been working for 3,000 years. Believe me, that's how it's going to work for you, Jordan. And, and so it has. So I know this. Trusting God in spite of my disappointments is a deeper trust than any other. The highest trust of all, I think, is trusting God in spite of good reasons not to. I think at that point, it moves, be, it moves beyond cost-benefit calculation, and it becomes worship at that point. Worship, I define worship as, as, as sacrificing to God beyond the point of calculation. It's where you're no longer accounting. You're just sacrificing. You're just abandoning yourself to it. And God will push your trust. If you really go for it in this life, God will push you to a point where you need to trust him without any reason to trust him. Well, you need to trust him even though you feel like he's pulled the rug out from under your feet. And that will be the highest trust of your life if you manage to pull it off. And that's been true of kingdom travelers from the beginning. It's hard to explain it theologically, but I'm telling you, that's how it works. That's how it works. You need to trust worshipfully instead of trusting lawyerly. Not to offend the lawyers in the crowd. No, I'll take it. Some of our lawyers are our best worshipers. So. Um, I think this is what God is looking for, in some of us anyway, in some of our lives. Job said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. But Job had gotten to that place where if he was going to trust God, that's what he had to do. Yeah, I think God might kill me today. Still going to trust him to be good. But, yeah. Yeah. Are you willing to trust him uh, no matter what? That was, that was the question uh, at the beginning of the sermon. Let's pray. Uh, speak, Lord. Uh, we, your servants, are listening. What do you have for us this morning? Are we willing to trust God no matter what? Are we willing to trust you, Lord? Are we willing to trust you worshipfully? What gets in the way? What don't we trust you with? Uh, we're here to, to listen and to be empowered, Lord. Father, I pray that you perfect your agenda for every person here, that we'd all change a bit before we go. We thank you that we have a place to meet even though it's hot. We thank you uh, that uh, 
you're growing uh, seeds in all of us in this hot house. I pray, Lord, we'd bear fruit this week, uh, that our lives would be meaningful to those around us. In Christ's name, everybody says.